Welcome back. It's episode 56 of The Build. We're in our Yessi Ulanen era, our Stefan Robida island moment. Our Alan Nasruddin chapter. That's two straight episodes with a former player currently employed by the Canadians. Last week we talked about Francis Bouillon to start the episode. Now we have Stefan Robida. He wore 56 from 2000 to 2002. That was horrible to say. Uh, he wore 44 the year before in one game and then immediately vacated the number for one Sheldon Surrey. Um, Alan Nazardine played just one season in Montreal, coming over from Chicago in the Jocelyn Thibault trade. Just eight games in Montreal for Alan Nazardine, and a whole bunch of bagels across the score sheet. He did not do much. And of course, our friend Jesse Ulanen, who has currently lost his spot in the lineup to the much maligned Yoel Armia, although Armia did finally. He did, I think, was it in his first game or his second game back? He, he ended up scoring. And it looks like Jesse Ullinen might be making his way back into the lineup, given some of the practice lines that we saw ahead of Montreal's Thursday night game in Arizona. Um, I couldn't find another place to talk about this without complaining about the power play again. But it's wild to me that Ullinen can't find a role on that second power play unit. That's a skill he actually already has. Like, he has a very good shot. He has a, a good offensive mind. He's just typically never played with players. Like, how much can we expect Jesse Ullinen to do at 5-on-5 five five when he's playing with Jake Evans, who I love, but he, he's not exactly killing it offensively out there, and Michael Pozzetta? Like, I don't understand what... The St. Louis is, is using him as a penalty killer. Jesse Ullinen, that is. Despite the fact that Ullinen has never, he said he never killed penalties. Which got me thinking about like, well, why is that the case? And then I was listening to the uh, Basu and Godin notebook from the SDPN, where Arpin Basu and Marc-Antoine Godin are back doing a twice-weekly show. It's great. If you haven't checked it out, I recommend it. Um, and Arpin Basu, similarly, he, he thought the same sort of thing about Arbor Jacai being on the second power play wave and Justin Barron being used on the penalty kill. Both those players could probably excel in each other's role, but Marty's taking a real developmental approach when it comes to using his young players on special teams. The goal doesn't seem to be to build on skills that are already there, but to help these players learn new skills. Yeah, you could probably put Justin Barron on the second power play wave, and I don't really think he learns much there probably learns a whole lot more in a situation on the penalty kill where he's not exactly comfortable. He doesn't know what's going on all the time. The same can be said for Arbor Jacai, who we kind of already know has, has a decent shot from the blue line. Um, but using him in a purely offensive environment is probably something that not a lot of people have done throughout his, his journey to the NHL. So it's really fascinating to see how they how they take a look at how these players are used on special teams, like trying to make them better at different things as opposed to just, you know, using using players in situations where they are already strong. If you're not developing players in these seasons that honestly don't ma- the results don't matter, 
you don't know what you're going to have when you do need to to put up wins and you do need to try to make the playoffs. But that's enough about that. We've got a ton to talk about this week. Um, your Montreal Canadiens are surprisingly 5-2-2 two and two, and are currently third in the Atlantic Division, even with the injuries and an entirely ineffective second line. Despite those injuries, the Canadians have remained afloat um, due mostly to some guys really stepping up on the back end and some sky-high goaltending that I think we will start to see the end of eventually. Um, but we'll get to all that in the next half hour or so. All right, this show doesn't have a ton of... uh reoccurring segments but the injury report sure is one of them um the biggest entry this time around is of course david savard um on october 23rd he was injured in a game against the buffalo sabers on a shift that kind of went viral um he blocked a shot with his hand which is ultimately um what he ended up injuring and then you know blocked another shot with his skate and his skate blade came flying out um, he's out six to eight weeks dating back to October 23rd so you know five, five to seven weeks at this point um, for a brief time the Canadians were without Savard and Caden Gooley who I believe was held out for 10 days with a concussion um, in the absence of those two players we've had some guys step up um, in a really big way defensively Jonathan Kovacevic has has really taken has really grown into a, you know a top six role or top a top four role rather with the Montreal Canadiens. Um, he spent the last three games on the top pair with Mike Matheson. Uh, offensively, Justin Barron seems to have stepped up, um, especially when Gouli and Savard were both out. Um, offensively, he was he was chipping in. He had some goals that I know some people will say bounced right onto his stick, um, but it's. It, it takes a confident defender to be someone who's jumping up in the rush on those those instances. And it's difficult for a defenseman like Justin Barron. You, you would be able to excuse him for having a lack of confidence when his training camp was, was terrible. He was a healthy, a healthy scratch to start the season. He finally gets his chance to play with injuries to his teammates, and he really hasn't looked back. Um, yes, he's got the three goals so far this year, but the one skill that I think he's excelled at so far is breaking up the odd man rush. Um, Baron, before Kovacevic started playing with Mike Matheson, that was Justin Barron's spot on that top pairing uh, for at least three games. And over those three games, I think Baron broke up three two-on-ones. Which, if you play with Mike Matheson, you're probably going to need to do that a lot. And I don't say that as like a jab at Mike Matheson. It's just an understanding of what makes Matheson valuable to the Canadians. He loves jumping up in the rush, and he's going to get burned from time to time. To be quite fair, he's been getting burned quite a bit to start this, this season with the Canadians. I don't think that Matheson is entirely healthy. He was pulled out of a game for testing and was immediately back in the lineup the next the next game. So something's going on there, and it's very clear in Mike Matheson's play that he still wants to take those rushes, but I don't know that his body is completely allowing him to commit most of the time. So I've liked Justin Barron's play to come back 
has it been perfect? No, you'd be hard pressed to find a defender on this team who has been perfect. The closest one has been Caden Gooley. Um, he returned uh, and has played two games since his his injury. And in those two games, he reminded everybody of the player he already is and the player he is going to be. Um, in his first two games back, he in each of those games, he led the Canadians in ice time. And that that's going to be critical in making sure that Mike Matheson doesn't play almost 30 minutes a night because we were trending in that direction for a while. He had two points against Winnipeg. Um, he was on the ice for both Canadians' goals against Vegas. Um, the more he plays, the the more highly I think of him. He's he's just been truly fantastic for the Montreal Canadiens. He's it's it's hard to imagine in my lifetime a 21 year old being as dominant with the Montreal Canadiens as Caden Gooley has been. It just hasn't happened. Defenseman forward, it, it literally doesn't matter what position he is. We're seeing something truly special in Caden Gooley, and it makes you know it, it. It makes the defensive picture look a little bit cleaner, right? Like you've got a guy like Caden Gooley, who's going to be your minute muncher defenseman, and you have David Reinbacher, who sort of projects as the same the same kind of player, um, ultimately with a right-handed shot, which is a, a hot commodity at all times in the NHL. And then Elaine Hudson on his way up. And then who of, you know, Jackai, Baron, Harris, Norlander, Mayu, who of those guys round out the defensive core. So you're starting to see a structure be built on that back end. And it's sort of up to the rest of them to determine who's going to be here three, four, five, six years down the line. So while the, the injuries have been tough and it's really it's kind of silly that, you know, it seems like the 22-23 season has never stopped. We're just playing games, what are we on now, like game 92 of that season? That's what it feels like. Um, we're seeing guys step up and play some really, really good hockey on the back end, which is, is really, um, it's, it's important to know that these guys can play that way, um, especially because the guys we're seeing it from are younger players who are going to be around a while. Some good news on the injury front, um, Montreal's game against Arizona will be game 10 of the season, meaning that at the conclusion of that game, Christian Dvorak is eligible to return to the active roster. Because he started the, the season on off-season LTIR, he needed to wait 10 games before getting into a lineup. And from what we can tell by him practicing, and you know, we're not really getting injury updates on him because there are no updates to be given because he's not really dealing with that injury anymore. It seems like he's healthy enough to play. Montreal's going to need to clear a roster spot as they're currently sitting at 23 bodies on the roster, which shouldn't be a problem because Lindstrom and Armia can go back to Laval without waivers because they have not been with the Canadians for 30 days or played in 10 games. So there are options there. Um, I really never thought that I would be highly anticipating the return of Christian Dvorak, but given what the Canadians are facing at forward, he gives them some options that they wouldn't otherwise have. So let's jump into that now. Um, the issues the Canadians have up front 
can be traced back with a solid line to the Kirby Doc injury. Montreal's lines on opening night were not perfect, but they made sense and they did the job. And what was that job? Well, it's, there's a few here. One, it gave Nick Suzuki another center in the lineup who can eat minutes and take on tough competition. It gave Slavkovsky a legitimate top six center. It allowed Newhook to play on the wing, whether that be up with Suzuki and Caulfield or on the second line where he started the regular season with Doc and Slavkovsky. Um, and, you know, somewhat important in all of this is it gave Montreal the luxury of a third line centered by Sean Monahan, who I know, you know, people have kind of cast aside as like this old reclamation project. He's 29 years old, right? Like, he's not, he's, it seems like he's been in the league forever because I think he did start playing in the NHL at 18. I can't remember exactly. But giving Montreal that luxury was huge. And once we lost Kirby Doc for the season, all of those things evaporated because there was nobody in the lineup or in Laval who the Canadians can, can use to fill in that situation, to fill in that hole left by Kirby Doc. And we're currently seeing the aftermath of that. Like, Suzuki's fighting for his life out there. His offense has absolutely turned back on. Um, but he's playing a ton. And there's not anybody else to, to share that burden with him. Slavkovsky's sitting on one point, And he has not been as obviously dangerous offensively. Although there are some positives to talk about. And we'll get to that. Um, because the the masses are starting to <laughs> are are starting to get a little antsy, um, because we're starting to hear fans you know talk about sending him back to Laval back to Laval. He never went, sending him to Laval so that he can dominate. And you know, I I don't even know if this is necessarily true or if this is just people inferring this, but people seem to be saying that the Canadians don't want to send him to Laval because they're worried that he won't dominate. I just don't think that that's the way that they think about Slavkovsky. Because he's not dominating now and it doesn't bother them. Um, while there may be some truth to that being a legitimate strategy, sending him back to Laval, I don't necessarily think it's, it's fair, or I, I won't say fair or unfair, because life's unfair. I personally cannot... I can't evaluate Uri Slavkovsky's play individually while playing on the worst line on the team, <laughs> right? Like, he is one-third of an offensive line that has had nothing going for it since Kirby Doc got hurt. So Slavkovsky, he's not getting the results that we would like to see. Third, Newhook has to play center now, something he very obviously is struggling to do. He was drafted as a center, yes, but it's what he struggled doing that in Colorado, and he's struggling now in Montreal. And now Sean Monaghan, the luxury third-line center, needs to be moved up the lineup to, to continue to provide value to that top six. But they can't do that until Dvorak is back. But since we're one game away from <laughs> the prodigal son, uh, Christian Dvorak, returning, 
there is a clear end in sight and a very obvious choice to fix that second line. If you've listened to this show or if you follow me on Twitter, I've been saying for a while that it seems like the Canadians are just wasting time for Dvorak to come back so Sean Monaghan can play the wing on the first line. And while that's definitely an option that could help the first line, I think the Canadians need Monaghan to center that second line more. And that could give Suzuki and Caulfield another winger who, if you remember, I predicted would play with Suzuki and Caulfield. So here's what I've got. Take Monaghan and you put him in the middle of Slavkovsky and Anderson. Dvorak is now your de facto third line center. And that line of Monaghan, Slavkovsky, and Anderson is a line we saw briefly last season. And it looked, it was starting to look like it was going to work until two thirds of it got hurt. And the entire thing fell apart. So Monaghan putting him with Slavkovsky and Anderson gives those two players the player with the second highest point total on the team. That's how great of a start Sean Monaghan's off to. That frees up Newhook to go back to the wing. And, you know, I, I, I per- this is what I would like to see. I would like to see Newhook go up to that second line, or that first line with Suzuki and Caulfield, because that speed is something they could really use. But what, I, what will probably most likely happen is Anderson will go to that top line. Because right now, that's like the only, it's the only bullet Marty has is to just flip Raphael Harvey-Pinard and Josh Anderson back and forth between the first and second line. And the only thing I don't love about this new situation that the Canadians may find themselves in once... Uh, I wonder if I've said Radic Dvorak. Someone will correct me if I've said Radic Dvorak at some point. I almost just said it now. Christian Dvorak. The only thing I don't like about this new situation with Christian Dvorak is that Raphael Harvey-Pinard kind of gets lost in the fray. He either goes to the third line and shifts one of Pearson and Gallagher to the fourth line, which I have no problem sending those guys to the fourth line, but I would have loved to, you know, reward Harvey Pinard for better play. Or you send Pinard, Harvey Pinard to the fourth line, which isn't going to happen, at least it shouldn't. Ideally, you, you could send Anderson to the third line, but I kind of just have, you know, we can sit here and say that that's what we'd like to see, but the reality is that he's not, I don't think he's going to end up there. So even with all of that in mind, I think the fan base and I think the team agrees as well is that we need to see some change up front. It's just Marty's hands have been tied by two things. One, the lack of a, of a replacement down the middle. We're going to get that in um, Christian Dvorak pretty soon. And the other issue being the Canadians just have not had time to practice and you know people talk have been complaining about well they don't practice the power play enough they don't have time to practice anything enough the schedule is so dense and you're only allowed to practice so many times in between games because of what the players collectively bargain so you know you look back at the start of the season montreal played toronto and then had two days off and then played chicago and had two days off and then played Minnesota, and then had three days off. Through all of that time, Montreal hadn't really struggled that much. Yeah, the Minnesota game was bad, but it wasn't to the point where, you know, forward lines needed to be changed. 
they got killed on special teams in that game. So then three days off after that Minnesota game, and then you've got Washington, Buffalo, New Jersey, Columbus, Winnipeg, and Vegas, all in the course of like eight days. So they just have not had time to practice. They practiced today as a full team for the first time in a very long time, it seems like. And let's take a look. They will probably practice again on Monday. Um, unless they win on Saturday night and cancel practice, which they, you know, the organization has been one to do to, you know, reward players for a Saturday night victory. But they might need to practice on Monday because there might be new lines. Like there might be an entirely different forward group. Um, you know, the group will be the same, but, it, you know, everybody will be rearranged. And then you've got a really challenging uh, four game stretch here. At home against Tampa, in Detroit, at home against Boston, at home against Vancouver. Those are teams that are tough to beat. So the lack of practice time and the lack of options to replace Kirby Doc have left the Canadians in this spot. We're probably going to see some change soon. We have to sit through one more really brutal game. And of course, it's, I think it's a 10 p.m. Is it a 10 o'clock? Uh, it's a 10 p.m. start. Super against the Arizona Coyotes. And then I would imagine we'll see some change. After that change is made, which is still just an assumption, but one I'm pretty confident in making, only then, then am I going to start to really worry about Yuri Slavkovsky. One voice on prospects that I trust is, is Hattie, Hattie Kalakesh. Apologies for stuttering on your name there. At Hattie K Scouting. And he had some thoughts on Slavkovsky's development. This is a tweet from his, from his account. Um, as much as Slavkovsky's lack of production concerns me, he, one, hasn't come close to being caught with his head down even once so far. Two, started leaning into his playmaking game, which is his stronger offensive tool, and somehow that's concerning to people. Three, is connecting plays way better, and if Josh Anderson could just stop trying to drive wide and crash the net every two seconds, they'd probably be better off. And four, is improving his board game incrementally, adding pivots and reversal hits to his arsenal. He'll be fine. Now, for me, from someone who's not a scout type, it's a good start for me when I read these things and recognize a point that I've made in the past. Slavkovsky often, last season, got, and I think once in the preseason this year, maybe once in the Maybe once in the Toronto game. I feel like it happened one time this year. It was probably a preseason game, though. But mostly last season, often he would get popped along the wall in situations where he just didn't know where he was. And Hattie's right. This season, it seems like he is far more in control of his body and far more aware of where he is on the ice, which is a big deal for a player who was playing in Europe and was playing on a different size of, of ice. It's also nice to see someone in this line of work make points that, that validate what I think most of us are seeing. His playmaking does look much better. The problem is the person he keeps giving it to is Josh Anderson. And he just, what's, what's driving me nuts about Josh Anderson right now is I know and he knows and everybody knows he has a really, really good wrist shot. And instead of just, you know, skating the puck to the faceoff circle or just inside, and, and wiring a wrist shot, he wants to skate it into the net. 
you you like even if he's successful and that happens, there's a good chance he's going to get called back for goalie interference because he's skating at full speed into the goalie. So I think that a lot of things are just going to get fixed as that line figures it out and as that line gets a little bit of a tweak. To reiterate the point I made earlier when talking about that line, I can't bring myself to, to say... Slavkovsky can't hang in the NHL when he's playing on a line that doesn't look like it can hang in the NHL. That whole line isn't working. I think people are, are you know, I think as a fan base, and rightfully so to a certain extent, we're hyper-focused on Uri Slavkovsky. But tell me that, that, that Alex Newhook looks any better. I don't think he does. And I don't think that that's necessarily Alex Newhook's fault. The way that this season has unfolded for the Canadians has put players in a situation they were not expecting to be in. So let's see them reinvent that line. And I imagine pucks are going to start to go in for Slavkovsky. Not only on his own shots, but setting up his teammates. People are saying that Slavkovsky needs to shoot more. No, if he's going to get the puck to Josh Anderson, something he's doing particularly well so far... The onus needs to be on Josh Anderson to shoot the thing, and he just isn't. Regression goes both ways. This is going, the, the, Slavkovsky is not going to sit on one point if he plays the entire season, <laughs> which I know seems like a very low bar, but I think that's where we kind of are right now, not only with this player, but with this fan base's expectations for this player. And speaking of regression going both ways, let's talk about goaltending. Uh, coming into the season, I wasn't a big fan of holding three goalies. I'm still not a fan of it because there's only one net and there's three of them. But it's been hard to argue with the results so far. Um, Josh Anderson started the season with a bit of a clunker in Toronto, but Honestly, those game ones against Toronto are always just complete gong shows. So I, I, I don't really blame him for that. But since that, he's been fantastic. In four starts this season among goalies with at least four games played, Allen is 10th in goals saved above expected. Sam Montebo, also in four starts, uh, finds himself in 30th in the same category. That essentially gives the Canadians two starting goalies. If, you, if you're a goalie in the top 32 in that category, it seems like you're a starter. That essentially, you know, leaves just Caden Primo, who has gotten just one game this year. And in that game, he was all right. Four goals against on um, what Money Puck says is 3.46 expected goals against the New Jersey Devils. The numbers from that game don't really jump off the page, but for Primo... To go into that game after sitting in the press box most other nights and take on one of the premier teams in the conference, I don't think he looked out of place. Of the four goals he was responsible for, the only one I think he really wants back was Tyler Toffoli's first of his hat-trick goals. He was, it was an unscreened wrist shot that looked like it was going right into his glove and just some kind of just kind of went through him. Um, it's obvious to me that Primo needs to play more, though. 
which was always going to be a problem with three goalies. There's only one net. Montreal's very clearly waiting for their moment to move one of these goalies, but obviously nothing's happening so far. We haven't seen, you know, the one big injury that we thought teams would try to capitalize on was uh, Andre Vasilevsky getting hurt out in Tampa. But Johansson, their backup goalie, has been fantastic to start the year. So the, it's been, it's, it's been a, a, a non-issue for the Tampa Bay Lightning, which means they're going to save their, their firepower for you know, making an acquisition at the trade deadline because they feel pretty confident that they don't need a goalie. And it also, you know, it, it, it bears repeating that the Canadians are going to have a hard time trading Jake Allen. Because he has a cap hit that just is not palatable for teams to take on right now. He's making nearly $4 million for this season and next season. So the easiest ones to move from a salary standpoint are Primo and Montembeau. And one of those guys has played one game in the first nine. So if you want to trade Primo, you have to get him into games. And it's something the Canadians just haven't been able to do or have not wanted to do. So if you're if if, you know, right now you were asking me who of those three is going to be moved to make space. I kind of have to say it's going to be Montembeau. He's a UFA at the end of the season. He'd be a pure rental for a team who needs a goalie. And I'm checking the cap hit. I think it's just a million bucks. Let me click on some things here. Yeah, a million bucks. 27-year-old goalie. At the end of the season, it's not your problem anymore. And this is just me thinking out loud. If the Canadians are planning on keeping Montembeau, are we expecting a contract extension at some point? Like, Jake Allen signed his extension last October before the season started. Players hate negotiating contracts in the middle of a season. Mark Antoine Guenang tweeted in August that there were no current contract negotiations going on, but if Montembeau continues his strong play into about Christmas, that price tag will go up. It's hard to imagine that Montembeau has added to his value so far this season, but he certainly hasn't done any damage to it. I think he's you know, whatever asking price he came in at in August is probably where he is now. It just really feels like that's where we're headed here. That, you know, Sam Montembeau is going to be the one who gets moved out to a, a team trying to win, and maybe they just need a backup who they can rely on in the off chance that one of their goalies gets hurt. But, you know, as Godin mentioned in that tweet, if this isn't buttoned up by Christmas and Montembeau has an upward trajectory, that price tag's going to go up. At that point, it kind of becomes imperative that the Canadians move him and try to recoup assets, especially with, you know, the, the fact that their last draft class has three goaltenders in it. If we're setting that, that deadline as Christmas, or let's just say the new year, it's November. It's November 1st. We might be approaching a time where a decision needs to be made sooner rather than later. And speaking of that time, that's all I've got time for today.
Um, thanks so much for listening. Like I, I say all the time, um, you vote with your time and your wallet. And since I'm not taking your money, I greatly appreciate the time you invest here. I hope it was well worth it. Um, I'll be back next week to break down some of the hopefully new forward lines and whatever this, whatever else this team is in the middle of. But before I go, I'd be remiss if I did not um, mention uh, the news of Thomas Placanitz's professional hockey retirement. Um, he was playing over in the Czech League, uh, in Czechia, um, in you know his home country, over the last few years, and he's officially announced his retirement from professional hockey, even though his NHL, um, you know, journey had ended some time ago. Um, it's, you know, it's he's a guy that I look at from the last era of the Canadians, that, you know, they never adequately had a guy who could have played above him. And that really could have benefited not only him, but the, you know, the team. To have a center that wasn't David Dayarnay playing first-line minutes above him would have been you know, massively helpful. Um, but he was, a, you know, he was a guy who, I feel like while he was here, he got traded twice a week. Like, he just seemed like that kind of player. Um, but, man, it's rare the Canadians have a player that other good players hate. Everyone seems to, we, we seem to think that, you know, a lot of them hated P.K. Subban, and they probably did for all the wrong reasons. But, like, ask, ask Brad Marchand if he liked Thomas Placanitz. He very did not. Ask Sidney Crosby. They had some battles over the years. He, he despised Thomas Placanitz. Because he was good, and he was a quiet pest, and he didn't, you know, he wasn't, he, he was probably a pretty dry chirper. Um, but man, like, the, the Thomas Placanitz adventure in Montreal was, was really fun. Third round pick, he comes into Montreal, um, he plays 15 years here. He does hit a, he does hit a thousand games, but seventeen of those don't count because they are with the Toronto Maple Leafs, and that makes me very sick. Um, your final line on Thomas Placanitz, the Montreal Canadian, the only Thomas Placanitz that matters: nine hundred and eighty-four games, two hundred and thirty-three goals, six hundred and six points, and a whole bunch of turtlenecks. Enjoy your retirement, Thomas. It was a Pleasure watching you play. Please come coach the penalty kill or something. I don't know. All right. As always, thanks for listening. Here's your long social media plug. You can find me on Twitter, not calling it X, at maybe it's Ian, and on Blue Sky at maybe it's Ian.bsky.social. The build is also on Blue Sky at thebuild.bsky.social. So go follow if you're on there. And if you're not, uh, I might have some codes kicking around. So reach out. Uh, the build is also on TikTok now at the build MTL, where I'll post clips from episodes or my wife will decide to post memes as she did today. Um, the same can be said for YouTube. We're uploading full episodes there as well as shorts for this episode. They might be out a little bit later because it's currently almost 10 o'clock here and I don't want to do it tonight. The music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing now is inside by Fred Mug. Check the link in the description to head to his Bandcamp page and listen to the rest of his stuff. All right, gang, we'll talk soon. See ya.